everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and I'm just so grateful that you are listening through these episodes with me. Today, we have our point leader, Bobby Harrington and Curtis Sargent, discussing the state of disciple making around the world. But before we jump into the episode, I want to let you know about a super cool deal that's happening right now with our National Disciple Making Forum. If you go to discipleship.org to purchase your tickets and use the promo code, all lowercase, podcast, you will get your ticket for 50% off. And that is a sweet deal, probably the best one that you're going to get. So make sure you go on over to the website and get those today. All right, so like I said, we've got Bobby Harrington and Curtis Sargent. They're talking to us about what's going on around the globe with disciple-making movements. It's fascinating because that's what we're praying and fasting to happen in North America. All right, let's jump into the conversation. Hi, everybody. My name is Bobby Harrington, and uh, I have the privilege of uh, being the point leader for discipleship.org. And why I really consider that a privilege today is that I get to talk with my friend and Curtis Sargent about disciple making around the world. And Curtis, we feel really grateful for your ministry and also privileged that we're able to talk to you. Uh, just for those who are listening, I'm going to give a little bit of background on myself. And then, Curtis, um, we we want you to tell us about uh, your background, what God's done through you. And uh, all of this is, is just intended to give context. And then also, uh, Curtis, with the amazing things that God's done through you for disciple-making movements, just to help people to, to realize what a wonderful asset you are to the North American church and uh, what instincts and insights and learnings uh, that you have. So I'm shamelessly going to be a Curtis Sargent fan during this this, uh, time together. So my background is uh, we founded uh, discipleship.org initially 2014, but really not till 2016. And we bring together uh, leading disciple-making organizations, networks, speakers, and writers with the mission to champion Jesus-style disciple-making. So when you think of how did Jesus make disciples, we think that's like the best way on planet Earth because Jesus incarnated in his ministry uh, God's brilliance. And uh, it's hard to think of a better way to make disciples than the way Jesus made disciples. It's really transcultural, and it's all about love, and it's all about helping people at the end of the day through Jesus to have our sins forgiven and to love God and love people the way Jesus would if he were living lives in our bodies. So uh, we're rabid about fanning the flames of Jesus-style disciple-making uh, everywhere we can. Now, my background is I've been a lead uh, minister, pastor, for uh, about 34 years, which is amazing uh, when I think how fast it's uh, gone. Uh, so uh, about 23 years ago, just outside Nashville, I'm a Canadian who planted a church outside Nashville, Tennessee, near the Harpeth River called Harpeth Christian Church. And then um, 
trained church planters for about a decade on the side. On the side, we started uh, the Relational Discipleship Network and then Discipleship.org. And eventually, because theology matters to us, Renew.org. But today we want to focus on Discipleship.org. And uh, I have the privilege of leading this team. We have a forum coming up November 4th and 5th in Nashville. Uh, Curtis will be doing four sessions at it. We want to encourage you to come and join and meet him face-to-face, as well as all the other networks and leaders who are all going to be teaching on Jesus-style disciple-making. So I am a coordinator, uh, author, practitioner, student of disciple-making, and uh, really appreciate, over the last couple of months, the time I've spent learning from Curtis. So that's my background. Uh, Okay, Curtis, uh, I'm really curious to know what you're going to say about yourself. I want you to try to, uh, you you are very much genuinely humble man, uh, really dependent on God, but um, just so that people can know how God's used you and where you've been, if you would indulge us and tell us a little bit about your background. All right. So I grew up overseas. Uh, My parents served as missionaries. So I grew up through elementary school in Taejon, South Korea, and then middle school and high school in Taichung, Taiwan. Came to the U.S., uh, went to school. Hey, Curtis, I'm I'm sorry, just to interrupt you. So when you grew up in Taiwan, did you uh, grow up uh, junior high and high school learning to speak Mandarin? Um, not really. I, I knew Korean. And then when my parents transferred to Taiwan, I had kind of a bad attitude about having learned Korean and not being able to use it. (laughs) So I sort of did my best not to really learn Mandarin, but you can't help but pick up a little bit. So, you know, I had a little bit, but, um, you know, later I served in China And I found it was definitely still advantageous having lived there because you hear the language and get a feel for the cadences and the, you know, the feel of it. So, um, you know, I couldn't really speak it when in middle school and high school, just at a very basic level. But did you learn that later? Uh, You're going to tell us. So so you know how to speak Mandarin, English, South Korean or Korean. Uh, any yeah. other languages? Yeah, but like the Korean, for example, isn't really functional anymore um, because it's phonetic. You know, I can read it and write it, but a lot of times I don't know what I'm reading or writing if I do, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, in children's vocabulary, you know, sort of stuff, but I can't really function in it. And that's that's true for several languages. There, there are actually several other languages, too, that I have learned and functioned in for a while, but uh, I just find I really lose them when I stop using them. So. Yeah, yeah, that's what I found as a Canadian. Uh, actually, my French professor was the one that discipled me at the oh. University of Calgary, but I, I can't speak. Je, je parle un petit peu français. I, I just, you know, lost it. Anyway, back to you, Curtis. Tell us about uh, uh, moving back to the States to go to university. Yeah, so I came back to the, well, first of all, one one thing 
that was pivotal happened when I was in Taiwan. I believe it was the summer after my freshman year in high school. I was at an all-night prayer meeting with some friends and really had a clear call to what has later been become um, called unengaged people groups. So unreached, unengaged people groups. And though that term wasn't in use, that's kind of what my clear call was to. So that, that was uh, pivotal in my ministry life. And then came to the U.S. And my assumption was that um, that would be in restricted access countries because most of the unengaged groups, that's where they were. Yeah. Um, so began preparing for a career in tent making and was interested actually in going back and serving in China. Um, and as I had prepared to go and was ready, the um, I was hoping for a job at the um, Chinese uh, Olympic Development Center in Liaoning. And it's sort of like their Colorado Springs, you know. And um, then the Tiananmen Massacre happened. And so, you know, suddenly they weren't interested in hiring an American for a, a, kind of a high-profile job like that. So, so that, that would have been in, uh, what, 1991? 89 was 89. Okay. Yep. So instead, um, I ended up going, uh, you know, another way and ended up serving as a, um, an NGO representative for a British NGO that's part of the United Nations NGO section and um, did that for 13 years serving in in China. And the first five years, we focused on um, an unengaged group that was on a large island off the south coast of China. It was a very undeveloped area at that time. And that's where I sort of learned and um, figured out a lot of the principles and approaches that we use because um, there were, you know, six plus million people to reach, basically no existing work for, for practical purposes and, you know, no tools in the language and all of that. And I just realized anything I've ever seen or heard of or read about there's no way this job can be, you know, done in my lifetime. And I'm, you know, I'm enough of, you know, a completionist that I want to, if I do something, I want to finish it, you know? So um, I, I wanted something that could be done in my lifetime. So started trying to figure out how to multiply disciples and how to multiply churches so that the job could be done because, you know, it wasn't going to happen by addition and I didn't really know how to multiply. I hadn't seen that. So that, you know, was kind of a pivotal, pivotal developmental period for me for sure. And then after we sort of got it figured out for that people group and God did some wonderful things there, then started working more broadly in other parts of China and, 
um, also began training full-time workers among a lot of other people groups in other countries starting then. Before you uh, transition to that, when you say that you you were able to get things done on the island, what, what is the name of the island again, Curtis? Hainan Island. Hainan Island. So I think you told me before when you when you arrived there, uh, less than a hundred uh, believers could be cobbled together from the you know just short of seven million people on the whole island. And then uh, when you left the island or when you transitioned to the mainland, uh, what did God do through you in terms of the number of disciples? Yeah, when we left, it still wasn't that high. It was like, if, and I'm not sure I remember exact numbers, but it was around 8,000 at that time. Yeah. You know, it was rapidly growing and had good geographic distribution. And they were, you know, really clicking. So in pretty short order, after we left, you know, they got up to 50,000. So and now it's about a million um, out of the now seven plus million that are there. And so all that came, um, those million came out of the work that you did in training indigenous people in these disciple making movement principles. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes people get, they'll, they'll hear numbers like that and get the wrong impression very little of that was work that I did directly, right? I mean, I was only leading a few people to the Lord, only starting a couple of, you know, a, you know, handful of churches that I had a role in personally starting. It was a minute fraction, but doing that in such a way that they reproduced. And then the, the impact is large, but, um, you know, the amount of work that a catalyst like that does is a tiny percentage of what happens. So, yeah. So that's amazing. So you you do the work to get it going. You establish the DNA. It becomes viral. And literally, it just goes places that you could never go personally. But it's indigenous. It's within the people. And it's a multiplying disciple-making movement. Yes, that's right. Okay. So um, you then keep walking us through just your story in terms of God using you on this. Then you started working with uh, the mainland China and uh, keep keep talking to us. Yeah, and then um, doing training of other full-time workers who were targeting unreached and or unengaged people groups and um, did that quite intensively actually for three years essentially um, full-time. And when you did that, were you training these leaders in the principles and practices that you had learned were effective on the island? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so did that for a while, then um, really full-time on the training for three years. And then at that point, began to do the training part-time in the work in China, part-time. And did that all the way up till 2002. And then um, during that period, um, we were... 
Um, even though we were working for uh, that British NGO, we were also working in connection with the Southern Baptist International Mission Board. And so uh, at that point in 2002, they asked us to um, return to the U.S. And um, I served as the vice president for global strategy um, with them for a few years. And then um, <clears throat> from there, you know, sort of tried to do all I could to get the that DNA into the bigger organization and then went to um yeah, just a sec so uh let's come back to that in just a second you were saying you're trying to get that dna into the international mission board is that correct that's right okay so when you came back to the u.s um what was the status in terms of the influence of the people you'd trained and the movements that you had started there uh, in china and beyond are there any metrics or anything yeah, like that that yeah. you could say this is what God did? Um, interestingly, um, I don't remember what the numbers were in the people group, but it was probably at that time maybe 300,000 or something along that line. Yeah. Um, thousand. Um, and I, I didn't wasn't really um, even seeking to track the rest of it. But interestingly, later in the story, started to try to reestablish connection with a lot of that. And so I have a much clearer idea today on the impact than I did back then. So, Okay, good. So let, let's uh, uh, transition then. So from 2002 uh, to uh 2012, which I think is a significant marker because you moved to Alabama in 2012. What were you doing? And tell yeah. us about that, trying to communicate that DNA. So I had a few stops. We were in Richmond, Virginia with IMB. Then I went out to Southern California and helped Saddleback develop their peace plan, or at least the original version of it. Yeah. Um, and then so tell everybody what the peace tell everybody what the peace plan was and is, just so our audience yeah. knows. So peace is an acrostic. The P stands for planting reproducing churches. The E is for equipping servant leaders. The A is for assisting the poor. The C is for caring for the sick. And then the E last E is for educating the next generation. So it's kind of a holistic um, missions approach. And um, so I was helping them develop and then pilot that. And in doing that, I was specifically piloting the um, church planting, you know, focusing on piloting the church planting portion and did a big project in India for a few years. Um, so that, that's the peace plan. And then moved to Dallas, Texas, and spent three years as the international vice president for E3 Partners, helping kind of them move into the multiplying, you know, church patterns. 
Um, you know, who are the E three partners for somebody who doesn't know that name? Yeah, so it's a church planning mission agency that actually started um, was started by a pastor who went on a missions trip, and then they accidentally started a new church during a missions trip, and so then he thought, "Huh, I wonder." You know, what would happen if we actually tried to do that on short-term mission trips? And so it became initially just uh, short-term mission trips focused on church planting, you know, largely through equipping local believers and then modeling for them for a little while. And so they, they and they were you know, quite good at doing that, but they weren't really planting churches that were multiplying. So, so they, they, would go, they, they weren't they, this disciple-making movement-type churches? No. And so they were effective at starting a lot of first-generation churches in that way. And so that was kind of what I fo- focused on, was helping them learn how to not just plant first-generation churches, but how to ch- plant churches that would reproduce. And so then at the conclusion of that time is when you mentioned in 2012, I moved here to Alabama. So you've got an amazing wife. Can I just say that? Mm-hmm. Like uh, even as you describe the places you've been and what you've done, uh, God blessed you with an amazing wife because she's your partner. I've never met her. I wouldn't know her if I saw her in a crowd, but I can just... Uh, Tell she's an amazing woman. You you are correct. You have the right impression. So um, maybe I'll go back one step earlier. When we went to E3, um, it was because of a specific dream I had. And God literally told me E3 and I had never heard of them. You know, and anyway, it's a kind of an interesting story, but I won't go into the details. But we went there based on a dream. And they thought, oh, this is great. But then when I left E3, it was also because of a dream. And they didn't think that dream was so great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I had this repetitive dream that indicated what in the dream, it was lower Alabama. And I had no idea what that meant. And actually, I found out there's at least four distinctly different ways that that's defined. But I just sort of took the broadest one and then just started anytime I had a gap in my calendar, would come down here and drive around and see, you know, if God told me where and what, you know, to do. So, uh, yeah, it takes a dream sometimes. Yeah, when, when I had the E3 dream, I was on a trip and I had the dream and I woke up, I mean, woke up, called my wife and said, start packing because we're going to move. I don't. I don't know where because I didn't know where their headquarters was, but you know. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> so Curtis, um, once we decided to do the training, uh, the disciple making movement training with you, I I knew I needed to recruit some folks to this training, and I asked you for some metrics. And before I get you to repeat those metrics, let's do some defining. When we talk about a disciple-making movement, uh, what is a disciple-making movement? 
Um, first of all, I don't know if there's a universal definition, but one pretty widely accepted one these days would be um, a movement of reproducing churches that has goes to at least four generations with at least four streams within a three-year period. So that, you know, that means a church will plant a church that plants a church that plants a church. That would be one stream of four generations. And so generally we're seeing that that's going to usually mean um, at least a hundred churches because not every first generation church plants second ones and so on. And, you know, there's some fall off and all that. So generally you end up with about a hundred churches, but it's not a hundred first generation churches. And then. Um, and that's within three years. Yeah. Okay. And so um, then we have different levels of movement. And so we there's a sort of a seven point scale that goes level one being you're just trying to use these approaches and that's level one that you may not have seen, you know, fruit yet or very little all the way up to a level seven movement, which is, um, you know, large, like really, usually really large, like hundred thousand churches or more maybe. Um, and launching other movements. And so levels five, six, and seven are what we consider full-scale movements. So five would be the definition I gave you, fourth generation and at least four streams kind of idea. And then six is bigger, better established. And then seven is these multiplying movements. So there, there aren't a whole lot of level seven, you know, movements out there. It's a, a relatively small number, but um, we're starting to see them more and more now, you know, as these approaches get more widely used and over a longer time. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at Discipleship.org. It's our Discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So in just a minute, uh, we'll hone in on some numbers and specifics. But uh, according to missionfrontiers.com uh, uh, and the work they're doing on disciple-making movements, there's approximately 1,400 disciple-making movements around the world. Yeah. 
So uh, when you, B levels five, six, and seven. That's five, right. six, and seven. Um, I do want to come to, you know, are we seeing full-blown examples of that here in North America? I think that, uh, Curtis, you're uh, more positive on that than I've been led to believe. So I want to come back to that in a few minutes. But uh, when I asked uh, you for the, the downstream of the training and disciple-making that you've done, uh, just as I was trying to invite some friends to the training. Uh, and by the way, at the end of the podcast, we're going to talk about how you can go through this same training. It's available online for free through Zoom A. Um, but when I asked you about it, uh, you said you wanted me to clarify, and we said October 2012. And if I'm remembering correctly, uh, you said since that time, uh, the downstream of the trainings that you've done and the people that you've helped, uh, 16 million baptisms and 1.3 million micro churches. Is that correct? And what, what's that's, involved in that? Yeah, that's downline from the church we planted in October of 2012 here. In that's Alabama. amazing. Like, like, Wow, thank you, Lord. And just to stop and think about that, that is absolutely amazing. Like yeah. I'm in a fellowship, I'm in a fellowship of churches. My my tribe, independent Christian churches, you know, they're like 1.2 million. Uh, and they've been around for over 200 years. <laughs> so <laughs> that's amazing. And but it's just like in the Hainan situation, the um, the amount that I've done, very small. Nobody would be impressed, <laughs> you know. So <clears throat> it is it is God, and it but it does matter the DNA, you know, that we're planting in a sense. Yeah, very much so. Um, we want to dive into that DNA, and those who are watching or listening. Uh, you know, they're going to want to know about that DNA. But before we uh, dive into that, Curtis, let's just talk about what's happening around the globe. Uh, in one of the broadcasts that's going to come up uh, in the next month, you have a very specific one on 2414now.net. But um, so I don't want to dive into that too much. But I do want to do an introduction to it. What is 2414now.net? Like, what does that terminology refer to? And uh, just in broad strokes, what's happening through 2414 and uh, now.net? And what's your relationship with it? Yeah, so 2414 is a coalition of movement practitioners. And it's named after Matthew 24, 14, which says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so um, this coalition are movement practitioners who are banding together so that they can collaborate and try to see every people group in every place at least engaged with attempts at movement. And we've got about 100,000 targets 
where we want to have these kind of efforts taking place that cover, you know, all the people, groups, and places globally by the end of 2025 to have, you know, something, somebody trying everywhere. So literally what you're saying yeah. is, is by 2125, you're going to try to fulfill Matthew 24, 14. Yeah. You know, at least have people trying to use these approaches in every people group in every place. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, I know that uh, uh, you've become a metrics guy, and so you actually uh, have numbers. Tell us about the numbers of people who are involved in disciple-making movements uh, based on the coalition of partners yeah. that you have putting the data into 2414now.net. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there are about 1,400 level five and above movements that have about 80 million people and 99, you know, percent of those are people who have come to faith in the, these movements. So, you know, it's not people who have been believers a long time because, you know, these approaches in most places in the world haven't been used very long. So, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting, actually. That's very exciting. So what, what you're saying, Curtis, is that literally a little more than 1% of the world's population today is actively involved in a disciple-making movement. That's right. Which is, again, maybe I'm geeking out or whatever, but that's pretty exciting to me. <laughs> That's let me you can geek out on it because it's it's amazing. And I'm so that just fills me with joy to know that and to to think that way. And and those people, like we're talking about this is like 30 years, right? Yeah. It's not much further than that. No, and the you know, the graphs on these multiplication movement things, they always go like this, you know, before they go up. And so a lot of that was this slow run up and we're just starting to turn the corner, you know. So the future is pretty exciting from my perspective. So what percentage or can you give us some ballpark numbers and just, you know, we these got to be ballpark, I know. But like, how many people in China today would be in a disciple-making movement? Yeah. Um, I don't have that number off the top, top of my head. I know the approximate number of believers, but that's a different, you know, different thing. It would probably be higher than the global average, but not as high as you might, you know, expect. So, I mean, I'm going to be making thing this number up, but... It's within an order of magnitude, probably, um, you know, maybe two to three percent of China would be in a disciple making movement. What percentage of people in China would claim Jesus uh, that they would claim to be Christians? I know that yeah. can be loosely defined. Yeah, probably over 100 million. Yep. So, you know, maybe approaching 120, but over 100 million. Wow, and about three percent of Chinese people would be in the disciple making movement. Again, ballpark. That's not. Yeah, that's a me ballparking it. Yeah. What, what two, about two to three percent? So, what about India? Yeah, 
India is actually um, a higher percentage, even though they they don't have quite as many believers. But um, there's been so much effort in the movement world in the early years to target very unreached and unengaged people groups. And India has by far more of those, or, you know, has had by far more of those than anywhere else in the world. So many more people were trying these movements and beginning earlier in general than most of the rest of the world. So, um, and again, I, I don't know the percentage, but it would be among the highest on earth percentage wise, um, you know, on the planet. So. That's great. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to go through every country in the world, of course. Uh, we have a close relationship, both Matt and I, uh, discipleship.org and renew.org. We have a real close relationship with Shadonke Johnson, whom you know, Curtis, mm-hmm. and uh, the hundreds of thousands that they're reaching in West Africa and the radical transformation, literally like the Book of Acts kind of stuff, which I know you've probably seen as well all over the place. Uh, but I do want to just ask, because I think it's going to get real big in the news here before long, about Iran. Uh, I've seen some stuff that there's this underground movement, perhaps as many as a million Iranians are in disciple-making movements. Do you know anything about that? Um, I don't know about a million in disciple-making movements. I do think there are at least a million who have entered the kingdom. Um, and it's one of those situations that um, I'm I'm kind of concerned about. Um, maybe a good parallel might be Azerbaijan after the um, fall of the Iron Curtain. So in Azerbaijan, lots of people started coming to faith. But they were not, you know, they were not organized into churches. And so disciple making, you know, wasn't taking place. And so, so much of it ended up evaporating. And I hope we don't make that same mistake with Iran. Um, You know, unless there are big changes Politically, which there certainly could be, there's a lot of, you know, foment, you know, in Iran. So it it could have big political changes. But if it doesn't, that means they need to be underground and, excuse me, and possibly even digital. Um, And so there are some, you know, there's some progress being made on that. But relative to the size of the number of people entering the kingdom, church planting is not keeping pace, you know, at that same rate. And so I fear that it won't be a long lasting, you know, thing if, if we're not able to do a better job of having them in churches. Yeah. Disciple making patterns can continue. Curtis, uh, this is my last one. I didn't plan on it, but it just came to mind. I think people would be interested. You actually have some information on some martyrs in Afghanistan. And what can you share about what you know about Afghanistan? 
Yeah, it's just, it's bad. So, you know, there are a number of places around the country where as the Taliban, you know, gets settled in, they're going house to house, searching for things, kind of issuing notice that, you know, like for a lot of the house church people, you know, we know who you are, we know where you are, we're going to kill you or we're coming for you. You know, those kind of things. A lot of people displaced because of fear out of that and, you know, a number of martyrs. And um, so it's really hard, hard days in Afghanistan. And, you know, some of the people are trying to get out. Um, and, you know, it'd be better if I don't give any details about that. But, um, yeah, it's really dark days for them. Yeah, as much as I can get excited about 1% of the world's, a little over 1% of the world's population are involved in disciple-making movements, I just can't uh, dodge or get away from a, a grief for what's happening in Afghanistan. It's just not good. Yeah. Um, so, Curtis, uh, uh, last, does, before we jump into specifics on on how to do disciple-making movements and uh, some of the, the very specific principles. In North America, um, discipleship.org did an extensive study with gray matters and with exponential. And uh, now this is about a year and a half ago, but we could not identify, actually a little more than a year and a half ago, before COVID, we could not identify disciple-making movement churches uh, we have a, a five a five scale where one is declining, two is plateauing, three is adding disciples. These are the popular attractional churches through preaching, praise and worship, and programs. They attract disciples and then you know add them one at a time through the programs. And then level four is where the church has personal disciple making going on. Less than 5% of churches in the United States qualified as level four, where they're focused on personal disciple-making. And level five, which is disciple-making movement churches, where it's viral, uh, we couldn't find any. Um, Harry Brown with New Generations and Jerry Trousdale, they're tracking it. And they say there's incipient, but they can't find clear disciple-making movements in North America. I think you're a little bit more optimistic that you've got some stats that would challenge that a little bit. Can you share those with us? On September 12th, um, there is a documentary that will go live. It's a, It will be at www.loveoneanother.life. So www.loveoneanother.life. And there's a documentary on early movements here in North America. And, um, you know, so people looking for those, talking about those, interviewing those who have already, you know, started them and things like that. So I think that would be really relevant. Yeah. Question. That's good. So do you have, apart from watching that documentary, 
do you have any stats, Curtis, or anything? I know that you've got some metrics where you're keeping keeping an eye on uh, what what can be input in terms of data on pretty much every county in the United States. Yeah, we're we're working on that. So within twenty four fourteen, let me tackle it from that direction. Um, it's divided into thirty three regions. One of those regions is the U.S. and Canada. And then that regional team has subdivided into six, um, you know, sub-regional teams. Um, And they have started gathering, you know, information on the, the 2414 coalition partners in North America. And they've identified, I I think it's a dozen different places that are seeing at least fourth generation growth and um, like accept interns and, you know, our training bases for others and things like that. So, you know, would all of those dozen fully qualify as a movement yet? Maybe not, but I know some of them do. So, you know, there w- there are at least a few that qualify as level five, well, in our seven-point system, level five. Yeah, and, and in ours, level five. And, in our, in and would probably qualify as well in yours. So it's not a big pool, but it does exist. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. And that's, I, I want to explore and find out more about that. Now, for the sake of our um, listeners or those who are joining us to watch live, Curtis, can you describe some of the key elements that are part of disciple-making movements? Like, if I'm listening in on this and I say, okay, what are they talking about? What are some key elements that would connect with people. So you're you're testing me. You give me about ten minutes left. <laughs> we're just Let's hey, all we're doing, all. Curtis. All we're doing is introducing people right. so that we can point them to Zoom A, so and, yeah. and they can get more. So first of all, um, I like to start from the perspective of before we talk about how we multiply. Let's first make sure we're worth multiplying. Oh. So. Um, we want to be what we want others to be? Yeah, I know that's tough, but. <laughs> I'm um, teasing. I totally agree with you, of course. So from, from that perspective, first, realizing it's about our un- knowing God so that we can follow him, you know? And so with that as a presupposition, I can unpack that for quite a while, but um, with that as a presupposition, there are some characteristics. Um, One is self-feeding. And this is because we want everyone to be a contributor, not merely a consumer. And so we want to equip every disciple to be self-feeding in regard to the word. So how to interpret and apply scripture, prayer, 
all different aspects of prayer. And again, we can unpack that for quite a while, actually. And then body life, the, the you know, the one another's, how we, um, God makes us to be mutually interdependent and those aspects. And then um, how to respond well to persecution and suffering. Because so much of our growth, God brings it about through persecution and suffering if we are responding correctly. And so that self-feeding aspect is a big aspect. Then we think in terms of um, what would probably popularly be called obedience-based discipleship. But this whole idea that we hear from God we do what he says and we pass it on to others. And so if, you know, think of it as spiritual breathing, breathe in is hearing from God, breathe out is do it and share it. And so having that structure shape any activity, any, you know, organization, any expression of, church, both individually and corporately. Um, thirdly, um, what I, I think of as awareness of where the kingdom isn't, right? So, and then I like to divide that into two worlds. One is our ongoing network of relationships, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, classmates. And then the other is everybody else with a special emphasis on the least, the last, and the lost. And so equipping people to recognize opportunities and understand patterns of working that are more typically appropriate or helpful in those two different contexts. And then finally, the reproducing part, you know, is implied with the obedience because we're passing on, but being very intentional about generational reproduction. So we spend a lot of time talking about the sort of the fine points of the training cycle, model, assist, watch, leave, and how in doing that well, we can see these generations reproduce without sort of losing the DNA. And so those would be some of the, you know, 30,000 foot level principles that we we would focus on especially. Yeah. I'll tell you what, uh, let's talk about Zume. Uh, but first I want to mention two things. One is I do want to encourage everybody to join us at the National Disciple Making Forum in Nashville at Brentwood Baptist Church, November 4th and 5th. Curtis will be teaching four sessions there and you can get to know him personally and connect with him. And uh, I, I just commend that to everybody. Uh, we're going to have lots of disciple-making leaders and speakers, and the theme is the cost of discipleship. The second thing is Curtis uh, has been working with me uh, and another man, Doug Lucas, with Team Expansion. And right now we're in a working on a, a collaborative project together on uh, having established churches establish disciple-making movement groups and principles. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, uh, I want to encourage you to email 
uh, info at renew.org. That's info at R-E-N-E-W dot org. And uh, uh, we'd be happy to correspond with you more about that. Curtis, talk to us about Zume, how to get there, uh, what what people can learn when they go there, and also about the free downloaded book that you've written. Okay. So Zume is a free online course, really, that's intended to be set up as sort of a 10-week small group, you know, curriculum type of a thing. Two hours per session, though, so maybe longer than most small groups meet. But um, that introduces you to the basics of all of these things we've been talking about. Now, um, live training is always better, but live training can be a lot more inconvenient or inaccessible to get to. So Zoom is a great place to start. The URL is Z-U-M-E dot training. Um, one nice thing is it's available in a lot of languages, uh, currently 38 languages, but several others in you know process. And it'll take a small group through that. There is a way to do it as an individual, but I don't have time to unpack that right now, but you can go on. It's available for free anytime. Have a look at it. Um, and then the book is called The Only One. And it's sort of um, what I would consider uh, an indirect or backdoor introduction to all of this. The book is set up with the first third talking about our individual relationship with Christ about our corporate connection with him. And then the final third consists of specific tools and approaches that I've found to be helpful in maximizing, in a sense, the, you know, the individual and corporate aspects of being a disciple. And um, it sort of introduces the reproduction focuses on that, but it's a little more indirect. So you can um, download that for free by going to theonlyonebook.com, and it'll give you a, um, a code and then a link to the publisher's website. You enter the code, and you can get the book for free. So, um, And the advantage, too, of going to Zume or... Um, the one and only book.com is that once uh, somebody gives their email, uh, they'll be in your, your orbit, Curtis. They'll, they'll start finding out more about uh, what's going on in your orbit and, and kind of get engaged in some of these disciple making movement principles. Yeah. And if you're, you know, if you go through Zoom, for example, and you think, yeah, I'd like to pursue more easy click that you want to coach. We'll connect you with a coach who's an experienced practitioner and trainer, and they'll figure out how to help you continue to grow and learn more. Curtis, any last words and then lead us in a closing prayer, please. Yeah, no, just uh, thanks for, uh, for having me, for talking with me. 
Let me pray for us. We're so grateful for you. Lord, uh, we look around us uh, today, and Lord, you are better news than ever. Um, the world is in desperate need of you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us each day to know you better so that we might love you more deeply and in turn know how to serve you more effectively so that you will be pleased. And on that final day, we will hear, well done, a good and faithful servant. Yes, God. And that we, you might use us to bring glory to your name, that you be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. And don't forget, mark your calendars for November 4th and 5th, 2021. It's our National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville. We're going to have it at Brentwood Baptist Church this year. It's going to be a great time. We've got great speakers from Sidney Clayton, Justin Gravett, Steve McCoy, Bill Hall, Drew Heehan. It's going to be a great time. So right now we've got a special running. Go to discipleship.org to buy your tickets and put in the promo code podcast, all lowercase, and receive 50% off that ticket. All right. Hope to see you there and I'll see you on the next episode.